Welcome to the Christchurch Oceanside Podcast, a faith community on Vancouver Island within the Anglican Network in Canada. We invite you to check out our website at ChristchurchOceanside.ca, or if you're on Vancouver Island, join us on a Sunday in the News Bay. Today's message is brought to you by our pastor, Father Ryan Matchett. We hope you enjoy. Bless you. again from the Gospel of St. Matthew, chapter 8, beginning in verse 14 to the end of verse 17. And when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. He touched her hand, and the fever left her, and she rose and began to serve him. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to you, Lord Christ. Well, friends, welcome back to the Christchurch Oceanside Podcast. Uh, This is Pastor Ryan here, and we are continuing our look at this radical text in Matthew chapter 8, and here we have Jesus delivering many people who were being oppressed by demons. And so here he's casting out evil spirits with a word, which is a pretty rad section of scripture. So last week what we looked at is kind of answering the question, should we, as followers of Jesus today, still believe in demons and evil spirits. How do we read texts of scripture like this? So if you missed that, you might want to go back. Uh, We did finally get that podcast up, and so you can go back and listen to it. Now this week, we're going to answer a different question. What exactly is demon oppression, and how does Jesus free us from it? Which I think is a pretty decent question. Um, And so we're going to start to unpack that today. So let's start with this kind of first question. What is demon oppression? Now, at the end of this chapter, we'll see another case of Jesus dealing with somebody who is struggling with demonic activity. The word used in that text is possession. So I think it kind of leads to the question, should we think of oppression and possession as the same thing or as two different things. Matthew seems to see a distinction as helpful, so we're going to kind of just run with that. And so we're going to focus on this text on the language of oppression or oppressed by demons. Now, before we can really answer that, I think we need to just kind of do a brief, as best I can, kind of backstory of demons and evil spirits throughout the whole of Scripture. Now, this isn't a full bibliology or anything, but I think we just want to kind of set it up to go, what's the big story here? How do demons fit 
within that where do evil spirits fit? So where we start in the scriptures is always the same place, God. Three distinct persons in perfect union as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so God creates spiritual beings who have names, personalities, responsibilities, and these beings are called angels. Heaven also has other spiritual creatures in them. Like if we look at different texts of scripture in the Bible, there's, you know, animals or sorry, creatures that have the features of animals, but are also otherworldly. And there's all sorts of stuff there, but we're not going to get into all of that today. But the specific kind of general category of angels are not spiritual equals to God. So this is where it differs, say, from many of the other world mythologies, is that we do not want to get confused and see some kind of variation of dualism, where God is good and Satan is bad and they are somehow equal foes. These creatures, these angels, are entirely subordinate to God. And as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, 19-20, They and all things were created through him and for him. So it's not a dualistic good versus evil. Good is beyond, triumphant. Evil is a (laughs) sub-subject to God and his goodness. So then what we have is God, who is spirit, then creates the material universe by his word, who is Jesus, and the power of the Spirit. So what we kind of get the sense from Scripture is is that the heavenly reality exists, angels and all that, God has created all of that, and now God is creating the physical world. And somewhere in the midst of this creation work, a group of God's angels rebels against him. And it's a rebellion led by an angel named Lucifer, who was filled with envy and sought to usurp God's heavenly throne. Now, the rebellion ultimately fails, and God casts Satan and his followers out of the heavenlies. And the scriptures refer to these fallen angels as demons. And so they're cast out of heaven and down to earth. Now, some scholars equate texts of scripture like Ezekiel chapter 28 which is really historically about the king of Tyre, and Isaiah 14, verses 12 to 14, which is a text about the king of Babylon, as more than just describing the fall of these human kings, but is also functioning as metaphors for the fall of Lucifer and his demonic host. So when you look at those, you kind of get this metaphorical picture of God casting out Satan from heaven like a bolt of lightning and and being sent to earth. Now, we see the impact of this at play, especially in the Garden of Eden, as Satan tempts Eve to follow him in his rebellion by encouraging her to distrust God's goodness, to aspire to be her own God, and to take matters into her own hands. And Adam, in his sin and his passivity, standing back from his kind of priestly role, also gives into this temptation and this sin. Now, the results of Adam and Eve's sinful decision is not only the fall of humanity from relationship with God and the goodness of his garden, but it's also a handing over of the dominion of the earth to Satan. So where God designed humanity to cultivate and bless the earth with him, sharing in some 
of his authority, right? So he's giving humanity some dominion over the earth. Now humanity has subjected the creation to this evil spiritual realm, which is then subject to idolatrous exploitation, the powers of evil, and the threat of destruction. This is what the New Testament writers are talking about when they say that humanity is under the power of the kingdom of darkness. So now note, this does not limit God and his authority over the earth, but it does subject humanity and the creation under the kingdom of darkness as its chosen authority. Because this is what we've done. By believing the lies and the temptations and by participating in evil, we make we give evil the authority over us, and in doing so, we give evil authority over the earth because God gave that work to us. So what we end up having then is God the Creator dealing with a rebellion of angels, and now humanity, which subjects the creation to frustration. And it's interesting the way Scripture talks about this because it's almost like the creation is still longing to glorify God, but has been frustrated by humanity's sins. But what this does is it stirs the love of God to initiate a plan of redemption and reconciliation of all things from within a world that's under the power of evil. So this is really what the scriptures are detailing, is God sowing promises and plans for his redemption in a dark, terrible, messy world. And that's why I often have to explain to my kids when we're reading the Old Testament, just because something is happening in the story, and just because the scriptures chronicle it, doesn't mean the scriptures are going, this is commendable, or this is good, or this is right. Instead, what's happening is God's going, humanity has participated in evil, has created this mess, the world is broken, but but my love is going to remain in this story. And it starts as like an initial promise in Genesis, in Eden, but then it, it just keeps this golden thread keeps finding its way into every story where God's saying, I know you made this mess, and I know you've made all things at war with me, but now I'm going to reconcile all things through my redemptive plan. And so it's his quest after his beloved image bearers as they struggle under the oppression of the kingdom of darkness. And I think oppression is a the right word. It's a good word to explain what exactly it is that we're dealing with. So let's unpack a little bit then. What's life under the kingdom of darkness like for humanity? I mean, we could talk about this forever, but I think I want to break down a few couple pieces. The first is there's a philosophical foundation or creed of belief of the kingdom of darkness. This isn't an exhaustive list, but I think this is some of the key points. The first philosophical foundation or creed of the kingdom of darkness is this. God is not good. The second thing is, you as humanity are not good enough. You're not happy enough, fulfilled enough, powerful enough, significant enough, etc. You must become like God. 
So you must aspire to godhood. And so you must do whatever it takes to be good enough and to become like God and to remedy any lack within your life. So that's like there's evil belief of God is not good, for example, and even that you're not good enough and that you must become like God. But now there's like a a multiplication of evil by saying do whatever it takes to achieve that. So do whatever evil is necessary. And then simultaneously worship and sacrifice the creation. And I think this is like a double-edged sword a bit to go, we worship, we're meant to worship the creation to give us what we need, but we're also being driven to sacrifice it or consume it beyond what is necessary. So it's destructive. That's what I think the philosophical foundation of the kingdom of darkness is. So how that works then is the primary work of evil spirits is in line with that creed. And the primary work of evil spirits, according to the scriptures, can be summarized in some of these key categories. The first is blasphemy, right? That's the whole God is not good. So the primary goal of evil spirits is to blaspheme the character of God the existence of God, the law of God, the promises of God. And and to really push that home, to always make us question God, doubt God, think poorly about God. So blasphemy is key to the works of evil spirits. The second thing is this, deception. And I think that's part of the blasphemy. The deception is God is not good or but also that humanity does not need God. And so in that deception is a constant blinding to the goodness of God, to the true goodness of even humanity as God's image bearers, and then this blinding to the gospel. The last thing that evil spirits want is for humanity to believe the good news of salvation in which they're transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. The next thing the scriptures tell us is that they are adversaries. They're adversaries of God, but also adversaries of us. They're adversaries of all human flourishing and goodness within the world. So they're set up to go anything that is good or beautiful or right or true or righteous, they are against and will aggressively, violently resist and attack. The next thing the scriptures tell us is that the primary work of evil spirits is as accusers. They're accusers of humanity's value. And so that's both deeply personal. So there's this attack on the personal value as a, of, of a person of being an image bearer of God. And so that's emotional and mental impact. The accusations center on the intrinsic value or dignity of a person. So there's this sense that evil is at work within the world telling 
people that they are not loved, that they're not good, they're not valuable, they have no dignity or worth. And so in one breath, they're saying, you should become like God. And then in the other breath, they're weaponizing the inability to achieve that. And so using guilt and shame and self-hatred to accuse always the dignity and value of the person. The next thing that we see through the scriptures is that evil spirits use sickness and disease, that they attack the physical person as well as the, you know, the heart, the emotions, the soul, the mind of a person, but it also has physical, biological impact, that they have power there to seek to destroy humanity because of sin. Now, the next thing is very key and becomes very important, and that is that the work of evil spirits is temptation, that they want to enlist humanity into more sin, more rebellion against God, to more unhealth and destructive patterns. And the goal then of all of these things is to lead humanity to death, to share in the punishment and the destruction that God has designed for those rebellious evil spirits. That that's actually the way the scriptures talk about it, is that this idea of hell and the final judgment and the destruction of evil is designed for Satan and his demons. What's happening is they're enlisting humanity into evil, getting them to join in the rebellion against God and his goodness, and then subsequently sharing in their punishment and destruction and final judgment. So what does this look like then for the average person? What does demon oppression look like for the average person? I think it's important to understand that this, that they're going to seek to hit humanity from both sides, right? To use that philosophical foundation or creed that I talked about to say, you can become independent. You can live without God. God is not real or necessary. You're enough. But then on the other side of that coin, to shame, to guilt, to destroy, and to rip you down. So it's a bait and a switch. But the primary goal then, and what this looks like in the average person life, person's life is they're seeking to influence and incept specific things from the outside into the person. So the kingdom of darkness is full of this evil, and they want to incept it into the heart, the soul, the mind, the body, and the life of God's image bearers. So where do they start? With our beliefs. So they want their dogma to become our belief system, that God is not good and God is not real. Plus, I need to be independent, but then the other side of the coin, I'm not good enough. And so I must make myself greater, better, richer, more independent, more beautiful, more, 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 better, better, better. This is the belief structure that they're consistently and constantly presenting to humanity. 
It's an anti-theology. It's, it's um, apostasy. The next thing is they want to influence our feelings, our emotions. That's our desires, our expectations. Our, it's our hopes, our dreams, our longings, but it's also constant disappointment. It's pain, it's loss, it's failure. So the emotional life that we have, they're seeking to twist and always turn away from goodness, always turn towards things that are destructive, always to focus on what is wrong, what is broken, what is painful, what's been lost. This is what they're always working to do is to pull us away from joy. The next thing is our thoughts. So they seek to incept into our minds, meditating on constantly how we are going, meditating on that dogma, how we're going to make ourselves better, how we're going to achieve more, how we're finally going to be worthy of love, how we're, how we're going to solve the problems that we're facing. So what the enemy wants our minds to do is to focus always on us, always on the problem, and always on the next thing in the creation that we need to get our hands on as a kind of short-term salvation. That the enemy always sees the problem, always sees the negative, and always sees what's missing. So it's always trying to turn and entice our thoughts to meditations upon these things. Then I think it seeks to break down our physical health. Sickness, pain, could be hormonal, could be chronic pain issues, immobility, all of these things. The same way our beliefs go, our feelings go, our thoughts go, our bodies go. That these, It's not like these are just separate playing fields. We are one person. Our beliefs, our spirit, our soul, our body, we're all one person. And the gospel is to save that whole person. And so what we see then in the scriptures is different examples of these things, that the devil is behind bad beliefs, bad theology, that the devil's trying to work in the midst of our emotions and in our thoughts, and that he brings sickness and destruction to our mortal bodies in the hopes of getting us towards death as soon as possible. What all of this leads to looking like is an oppression of the whole human life. And so that's kind of the way Matthew wants us to see it, is that this is like a global oppression by an evil power at work within the world. But then... What we see here in this particular story is that Jesus has the power to cast these demons out and to heal the impacts that they have to the point. I think what's being implied here is that Jesus is bringing healing to the inner person and healing to their physical bodies. And Matthew draws the connection in verse 17 to Isaiah 53 that Jesus is doing this to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illnesses and bore our diseases. That what Matthew's doing is he's connecting this to go, Jesus isn't just healing because he's God. 
Jesus is healing because of his work on the cross and the resurrection and all that comes with it. When we look at Isaiah 53, it's a brilliant prophetic passage of scripture because it almost details the gospel exactly of the work of Jesus and what he's going to do for redemption and the reconciliation of the world. For Matthew, every healing is the Savior participating in the illness, disease, sorrow, and suffering of the oppressions of the kingdom of darkness. For us, he's coming right into, so you could view it as like Jesus is the true king and he's going to come and conquer the kingdom of darkness. And then it's all kind of like top down implications and blessings upon us. But instead, the gospel's like Jesus comes down to the lowliest, darkest, worst part of what the people living under the oppression are in. So Jesus frees the oppressed by being born of a virgin in a broken world, but not of it. Jesus frees the oppressed, having lived a full human life free of sin. Jesus frees the oppressed by refusing to participate in the evil of the world and refuses to accept the lies of Satan and serving rather than consuming or exploiting. Jesus conquers the kingdom of darkness by being human, too. In verse 3 it kind of, of, of Isaiah 53, it kind of captures this, that he's despised, rejected, man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 4 talks about how we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. It's this lowly life that Jesus comes into because these are the people that he is saving. So he saves us from the bottom up, not the top down. Verse 5 says he's pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. So this is the peace that Matthew's drawing our attention to is that he is taking on himself the, the iniquities. He's crushed for our iniquities. He takes upon himself the chastisement in order to give us peace. He takes upon himself the wounds in order that we would be healed. Because at a heart level, what we've all been doing is verse 6. Like sheep, we have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. So this oppression, it's, it's almost like a democracy in the sense of this is the leaders we chose and the mess they're making. We deserve it. But Jesus comes into it and takes it upon himself instead of us getting what we deserve. Verse 7 goes on, He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. There's no complaint in Jesus about this work. He knows the nature of the redemption. And it needs to be thorough to save every part of the human life. And then verse 8, by oppression and judgment he has taken away. 
And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave, verse 9, with the wicked and with a rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there was no deceit in his mouth. Jesus then conquers evil and the oppressive powers as the suffering servant. He's hearing the cries of the sick and the suffering. He's healing the wounds and diseases of the desperate and dying a sinner's death to redeem us from our enslavers and to save us from the judgment that has been reserved for them. The oppression and the judgment he's taken away and he feels it upon himself. Verse 10, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. It almost gives language to this idea that all the sorrow that Jesus takes upon him, he then offers up as cries from his own soul. And all of this appeases all the consequence that's needed for bad decision, all the judgment that's hanging over our putting in place these evil powers. You know, it makes me think of Nazi Germany, which my family line goes back to um, German roots as well. But that's what happened. This, this thing of like, we put in place Hitler. And then the decisions and the, the evil work that he did, there was a culpability to the nation of going, this is the man we chose. And as he did evil, we did not choose different. This is part of what's happening, and Jesus is making it all right. Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The resurrection of Jesus is precedent setting as a final triumph over all of God's enemies. And it's going to make a way for many to be accounted as righteous. That Jesus proves perfect righteousness in his resurrection. He's fully validated and vindicated and shown to have no sin in the process. And that there's so much righteousness available there that it's enough to save lowly sinners like me and like you. Verse 12, therefore I will divide him a portion with the many. And he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. The ascension of Jesus will deal ultimately with evil once and for all. And the spoils of dealing with the, these evil powers will be to disperse the joys and freedoms and wealth to his people, those who refuse to be counted as part of the rebellion, but instead through true faith and repentance turned to Christ and believed in the good news. This is what Matthew is saying. Jesus casts out demons easily because of the sheer 
sufficiency of all of the work that Jesus does and is about to do to save the world from evil. So it leaves us with one last question. I realize we're getting close to the end here. How should followers of Jesus deal with demonic oppression? Now, I can't do a ton of time on this today. Uh, maybe it's worthy of an extra podcast. You can let me know if that would serve you. But let's just try and answer that briefly. The first thing I want to say is this. The most common emphasis around how to deal with demonic oppression I hear from Christians is not actually that helpful. Here's how I hear Christians talk about evil spirits. The first is, it's common to blame the consequences of their own bad decisions on spiritual attack. And that's a hard pastoral truth. But often I hear people saying things like, oh, this is all spiritual attack. And I'm sitting there going, dude, this is, this is clearly just the consequences of some bad decisions. So yeah, what was the enemy involved in this? Sure, tempting, um, accusing, filling hearts and minds with bad theology that you got to do something wild and crazy here, or you got to push this through, you got to make this happen, and these are the consequences of those of falling to that temptation. But ultimately, it was you that made the decision. So I see that often, and I think it's unhelpful. The second thing is this is there's a fear, and I. Uh, this is a hard one, but there's a consistent fear I hear, especially in parents, that the dysfunctions, troubles, outbursts, and difficulties with their children are somehow caused by demonic attack. And that what needs to happen is the demons need to be dealt with to fix the problems. The reality of those situations is when we're dealing with like massive dysfunction and troubles and outbursts and difficulties with our children, a lot of it is, is more likely traced back to the culture of the family system. That there are, there are problems within the home that need to be addressed in order to follow, follow the way of Jesus. Now, is temptation and is lies and deception and the works of the enemy at work within the lives of the children? Absolutely. But ultimately, they're not the primary cause. They're just part of life in a broken world. The last unhelpful one I see is where those who see the world, governments, etc., as all tools for demonic powers to be used against them. So there's this sense of like somehow demons are in charge of everything and the plan and the redemptive work of God and the presence of God at work within the world is somehow secondary to that. That somehow Jesus still needs to triumph over them and and. And that's just not true. We live in an in-between period where Jesus has triumphed over evil and demonic powers within the world and then is going to deal with them once and for all. They're still at work within the world. They're still active. But Jesus is working his big plan and they can't help but be used for his ends. So where we want to end then is what's the New Testament and the early church emphasis for how followers of Jesus should deal with demonic oppression. The first is this the sense of like 
a, um, a, a eyes wide open concern for the blasphemous lies of the enemy. So there's an awareness of going, the enemy is always going to be speaking lies about God to me and always going to be seeking to get me to believe those lies about God. The second thing is that there's a consistent concern in the New Testament for your own susceptibility to sin and temptation. So the focus is on us, on me, not listening to these things, on me listening to the Spirit and doing what is right and good and according to the way of Jesus. And so that's, it's a humility. And this is why Jesus teaches us to pray on a daily basis, deliver us from evil, is because the weight of responsibility is not, oh no, there's demons in the world. The weight of responsibility is Christian, believe in Jesus and resist the devil. Resist temptation, and he will flee. The third thing is wisdom concerning the accusations of the devil. For the enemy seeks to separate us from the gospel. And so he wants to fill our minds and our hearts with shame and guilt and disqualification and self-hatred. So wisdom of the early church is to cling to Jesus and resist agreement with these accusations that come from the enemy. And the last thing is that in the midst of great trial and hardship and even attack, the emphasis of the New Testament and the early church is on the individual follower of Jesus and their growth into Christ's likeness. That Jesus would use the situation, the attack, the trial, the difficulty, to grow the Christian into Christ's likeness. That's the emphasis. So I think where we land then with this text of Scripture is to just see Matthew has such a high vision of Jesus and his sufficient work based on Isaiah 53 to conquer and destroy evil. So for the Christian is to go, Jesus can dispel these things with a word. And so I want to be if Jesus can do this so easily, then I'm going to give my full focus to Jesus, to receiving Jesus, to growing in Jesus, to be more like Jesus, and and to pursue righteousness and goodness. So I realize this is a big topic. There's a lot to take in. But my hope and prayer will be that this serves you to see Jesus rightly it raises your faith and your confidence in Jesus and helps you get a bit of the lay of the land. What is going on with evil spirits? How do we interact with them? And the good news at the end of the day is this. Recognize where they are. Notice the dogma, the beliefs, the temptation, the accusation, um, the fear, all of these things that they would seek to sow into your heart. Recognize it and reject it in the name of Jesus, and, and they will be cast out with a word because Jesus is faithful. Okay, my friends, blessings to you. I hope this serves you well because this is the way of Jesus. <laughs>